You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, I'm glad you're here. Uh, This is the third of five parts on Jesus' relationships that we can see in the New Testament. We first started with Jesus' relationship with evil and saw that um, it was an antagonistic relationship and Jesus opposed evil all along the way. Then last time we uh, talked about Jesus' relationship with the scribes and the Pharisees and why that was so vitriolic. Uh, And and, uh, the upshot of all that was that because the Pharisees against whom Jesus critiqued, now not all Pharisees were adversarial to Jesus, but the majority of them were, is because they had totally misconstrued, misused the kingdom of God. And Jesus knew that he had to oppose them in order to do his mission. Well, today uh, we're going to look at uh, uh, some passages dealing with Jesus' relationship to women, which was, I think, a key part of his ministry, and it's been one of the most discussed parts of his ministry. And I do think it's going to show us something very, very significant on how to rightly relate to Jesus and be disciples of the kingdom of God. Now, before I do that, I want to open this up with a prayer. We humble our hearts and minds before Thee, O Lord, and open ourselves to the movement of Thy Spirit, to embolden us and to convict us. This I pray. Amen. Now, this is well known. You probably have heard this before, that in Jesus' day, obviously, and in probably so, there many other times throughout the history, maybe even relevant in some ways today, but it was widely known that most people who had children were glad that they had male children and not women children. And it was seen to be somewhat of a disadvantage, obviously, but an inferiority to be a woman. However, though, I will say in Jesus' day, there was a lot of debate in, in society among rabbis about what were the rights of women within the family and inheritance and so on. However, though, probably where women hurt the most, or were least hurt the most, was uh, with divorce, that men could easily divorce women. In doing that, it, it cut women off from the social power of society, inheritance rights, financial rights, legal rights. You had to have a male patriarch to be part of all that, and you divorce a woman, and then she is cut out of that kind of access. And so many women were just left on their own, vulnerable, uh, because of the, their misuse. And Jesus comes into this this time and does some things that are just incredibly radical in that day and also I'm going to maintain for our day. All right, to make that point, I want to stress something here. It may be debatable. Uh, I think I'm right in saying this, but I, I, I can see where some people would oppose what I'm going to say. That Jesus does, does give equality to women. I'm convinced of that. No doubt about that. But we need to understand what equality means. You know, you can have equal rights, and we, we, you know, at least in the letter of the law we do, and hopefully in the spirit of the law we do, between men and women. But that doesn't mean you're equal in full personhood. You may have legal rights, economic rights, financial rights, but you may not have that right with other people in your full personhood, just having to do with civil rights, you may that. Or in terms of sexual expression, there may be equal equality in our sexual expressions with one another. However, there's so much more to us than just our sexuality. 
it's not a full person equality. We have equality in some aspects of our lives, but what does it mean to have full person equality? I think what we're going to see is that Jesus gave full person equality to women, that they were accepted just as much as men in the kingdom of God, and that he called them and commissioned them just as much as he called and commissioned men into the kingdom of God. So full equality is not necessarily found by sort of social models, but it is found in the kingdom of God. We find our full equality, full personhood equality in our obedience. Uh, to Jesus Christ. Christ is the one that makes us all fully equal with one another. And these examples that I'm going to show, and I'm not going to be able to look at all these that I have because uh, of our time restraints, but I think exemplify that. What I want to do, and it's a little risky, or maybe that's not the right word, a little uncertain, to map out a chronology in Jesus' life and his dealings with women. I'm going to try to get close to that. But we do know that when Jesus was beginning his ministry in the Galilee area, where we'll go in June, uh, that many women were attracted to what he was doing. They were drawn to what Christ was doing. And Christ had performed several miracles. I'll talk a little bit about those with women. And so there were a group of women following Jesus around. Uh, I think, now I could be wrong, I, I, I'm, I'm you know, it's really hard, I think, to know exactly the case. But I believe the first serious encounter that Jesus has with a woman uh, is with Jesus in Samaria. He has gone over into Samaria, which was an uh, off-limits place for Jews. But nonetheless, he ventures into Samaria because they were racial mixed, racially mixed, and they worshiped there in their mountain, and they didn't worship God down in Jerusalem, and so there was a lot of well, misunderstanding, but also bitterness between the two groups. But there is Jesus in Samaria, and he has this interesting encounter with this woman at Jacob's well. It's one of the places I saw uh, in 2011. I'm not sure if we're going there in June or not. I forget whether we're going to go to Jacob's well. We are going to Samaria, and my guess is that we will go to Jacob's well. Well, as, as you remember this story, and by the way, it's recorded only in John. It's kind of interesting why only in John this, this shows up. It's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There in John chapter 4, he is there at the well, and a woman shows up, and Jesus asks her to draw water for him, draw water for him. And it begins this kind of curious interchange between them. Uh, I'm going to spot read a little bit from that episode. Um, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So Jesus is crossing not only the racial divide, but the gender divide between them. All right. And, and Jesus says, because uh, I need water. And she, and she says, uh, I don't, you don't have a bucket. Why am I going to get a bucket? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. That water that I will give become to those who drink it in spring water that bubbles up into eternal life. So Jesus is offering, offering her his ministry, his presence in her that leads to her eternal life. So she has as access to eternal life as his disciples do. He is not prohibiting her either because she is a woman or a Samaritan. And this goes back and forth and... Uh, 
There's that interesting, and I, I have to admit, sometimes I don't know exactly what was all going on in that conversation, talking about all the wives, I mean, husbands that she had had and that she's now living with a man that she is not married to. And uh, then uh, Jesus says this, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's kind of curious why Jesus would say that when he makes so much out of Jerusalem. But with her, Jerusalem is not her key to get into the kingdom of God. What is the key for her to get into the kingdom of God? Him. He is the water that brings eternal life, not the city of Jerusalem. You and your people worship that you don't know. We worship uh, because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worship will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit and is necessary to worship God in truth and spirit. Though she may be prohibited to, from going to Jerusalem, and then from that perspective, she is not equal to the people of Jerusalem. But what Jesus says, she is equal to all people who are in the kingdom of God because you worship in spirit and in truth. Well, uh, uh, she is obviously just overwhelmed by this and totally transformed by it. And she goes and tells many other Samaritans about Jesus. Let me think here for a second. I could be wrong on this too, but I think that's the first episode in the chronology of Jesus. I'm only 51% sure on this, okay? (laughs) I I shouldn't even venture and say this, but she may be the first who goes out and spreads the word. Now, it's spreading around that he was a miracle worker already in Galilee, but I'm not for sure about being the Messiah. I could be wrong, but like I said, I'm only 51% sure on this one. Well, many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word. She was a missionary. Maybe one of the first, if not the first. Jesus selected her of all people. Uh, We do know, and this is found in Luke chapter 8, that women started to follow him. And in the reading for the worship service in Luke chapter 23, it mentions many women were still following Jesus even to the cross. So he is in the Galilee area and a group of women starting to follow him and they follow him all the way to his death. And some of them, and this is found in Luke chapter 8, were giving of their resources. It really wasn't uncommon for rich women to help rabbis. And so some of these women were following Jesus around and supporting him and the disciples in doing so. All right, but uh, there is this wonderful story of the Syrophoenician woman. One second, let me find it. <clears throat> this is found in Matthew and Mark, Matthew 15, Mark 7. From there, Jesus went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. All right, no, no map. Okay, here's the Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem. I mean, the, the Mediterranean coast. Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon is right up there on the coast. All right, Jesus has gone down into Samaria. Well, he's gone around Galilee. He's gone down to Samaria. Now he's up in Tyre and Sidon. And that, that's not a Jewish area. So he's, once again, broken a barrier. A Canaanite woman. Now, the Markian count calls her a Syrophoenician woman, which is a racial mix. Not Jewish. A Canaanite woman from these territories 
came out and shouted, Show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And but he said, but he responded to her. His uh, excuse, but he did not respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, "Send her away. She keeps shouting out after us." Jesus replied, "I've been sent only to the lost sheep under the people of Israel." But she knelt before him and said, "Lord, help me." He replied, "It is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs." She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then her daughter was healed. This too is a perplexing story. What was Jesus doing with her? Why did he say, I've only come to Israel and not to you? And then all of a sudden in her devotion in her need, her absolute need for what Jesus could do to save her daughter, which any, any mother would do, uh, Jesus, I, I, it sounds like he changes, doesn't he? I'm not for sure theologically what make to make out of that, but I do know in this account, Jesus is changed by her absolute devotion to who he is. Her recognition that something powerful and special was happening in her. And Jesus says yes and grants that miracle. In a sense, then, he welcomes her into his ministry, into his kingdom. That her presence here, the need of a mother for a dying child was so great that Jesus broke through that barrier of Jew and Gentile and brings the kingdom of God into the realm of Gentiles through what this woman did. Incredible story. Then there's that wonderful story, and I, uh, you know it well. And I'll just—I'm not going to read it. I'll just uh, sort of briefly summarize that between Mary and Martha, when Jesus goes to Mary and Martha, and there's that wonderful kind of interchange between Martha and Mary, and Martha is really busy getting Jesus something to drink and to eat, and Mary is just sitting there listening to what Jesus had to say. It, it, it's not recorded what he did say. And Martha is a little sort of flustered with this and said, Jesus, why don't you tell her to get up and help me, you know, set the table or something. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Uh, you're doing what you need to do, Martha. But she is doing what she is needing to do as well. And this is the better service. So here is a woman listening to him. He needed to tell her something. He had to share something with her. And she was responding appropriately. And she was in tune and intuitive to what Christ needed at that moment. And she responded with her own kind of visceral reaction to all the, what Jesus was sharing uh, with her. And that was the better thing. So Martha here sort of stands, I mean, excuse me, well, Martha too in her own way. I don't like to denigrate Martha too much because she had her role and definitely later on she does. Um, I mean, she is doing the act of service, but Mary is doing the act of devotion. And that's the better service. So even Jesus accepted, appreciated, included, wanted the devotion of the woman Mary. Uh, then, this is a very interesting episode. I'm not going to go into much detail. I think chronologically, this is found in John chapter 7, and it's only in the Gospel of John, and that is when the adulterous woman is brought to Jesus. Now, if you have studied that account very much, there's some question about whether 
that really did occur. I, I, after what little study I've done on this, am convinced that it occurred. It fits so much of the rest of the ministry. But the reason why there's some question about why it occurred, if you're familiar with this, we have a number of ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Some of them are complete, not many of them, but some of them are complete, and most of it is just partial, sometimes just a couple of verses, sometimes what we'd call a chapter or whatever. In some of the more reliable manuscripts of the New Testament, this account is not there. But it is in a large majority of accounts. That's why some people question whether it is not. I think it was, and it was just not included in those those other manuscripts, because it fits so much of Jesus' ministry. But you know the story. They bring this woman in. They want to charge her with adultery and stone her for what she did and appealing to the law to do so. And Jesus, knowing what was their sort of, what, misogyny, I guess, their, the despising of women in their heart, uh, sort of stops that. And he says, ye without sin cast the first stone. That is, uh, you are as equal in your depravity as she is. Her depravity is not worse than yours. Her sin is not worse than yours just because it's a woman's sin. The husband's sin is just as bad, and he ought to be brought to this as well. But you've rejected this. You only would con- con- condemn the woman because you think the woman's sin is worse than the man's sin in it when it comes to adultery. And he says, you without sin cast the first stone. And so he breaks through that social barrier there to accept her. And then he said, woman, and I've, I, I think in some ways this is the epitome of Christian ethics right here, what he says to her, at the heart of how we should treat all people. I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. That's what he says to her. He treats her as a full equal. I'm not condemning you, but you are responsible. You're held accountable to the Torah, to the law of God and go and sin no more. So he treats her with full respect and dignity in in her own particular state. But the episode I want to spend a little more time with is uh, the anointing of Jesus at Bethany, which is about four or five miles outside of the old city. All right, let me find it here. This is found, well, there's some question about one of the accounts, but this is found in all four Gospels. So it's a very prominent story told uh, throughout the witness of Jesus Christ. But Jesus was at Bethany. I'm going to read from the Matthew account, Matthew uh, chapter 26. Visiting the house of Simon, who had a skin disease, a woman came to him with a vase made of alabaster containing very expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' head while he was sitting at dinner. Now when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. Jesus said what they were thinking. I mean, excuse me, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said, Why do you make trouble for the woman? She's done a good thing for me. You have always the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this perfume over my body, she has prepared me for my burial. I tell you the truth, that whatever, I mean, wherever in the whole world the good news is announced, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now that verse is also repeated in the Markian account, but it is for some reason not in Luke and John. 
Some people think that the Lucan account, which is Luke chapter 7, and chronologically it probably happened earlier, was a second anointing given to Jesus. So I'm convinced, some people think there's three, but I'm convinced there are at least two anointings by women on Jesus. But let's look at this. It's an unusual scene. Jesus comes in. There's no real introduction of this woman. There's no real explanation of what she's doing and what she wants to do. Jesus sits down. Immediately, she pours this oil upon his head, which obviously is metaphorical. And the disciples don't get it. They don't understand the significance of what she has just done. In fact, by this time, yes, by this time, Jesus has already predicted to the disciples three very explicit pronouncements of his forthcoming death. I mean, he was just as clear as he could be to the disciples. And in each of those cases, they didn't understand it. But this woman did. She understood it. Now, she might have been one of the women that were following Jesus, seeing what he was doing, hearing what he was saying. Might have been, we don't know. But she knew something that the disciples didn't know. And she knew that he was going to be killed and buried. And so she anoints him for his burial. Now that's just not his death. That is the salvation of the world. That is the culmination of his ministry. That is his mission as the Son of God in relationship to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is who Jesus is. And she knew it. Why? How? What is it that she had in her soul that enabled her to grasp what this is? Now, this is a conjecture. I, I, I have no real authority, and it's scriptural authority definitely, in saying this, but I, I, I think this can make sense. Yes, before me. I need to interrupt. Yeah. Um, but how common was it for a woman to anoint a man? Well, I, I'm not really for sure. I would guess it was pretty unusual because it would seem to obviously to be a little too sensual to just go up to a stranger and do things like this. But I, I don't think it was a common practice like what she was doing. So she was breaking a norm in doing it and taking a chance in doing so. I mean, she could have been, you know, considered a prostitute or something. But right, here's my hunch why she did it. Okay, as a person who perhaps, it seems like she's a single woman. Again, this is a conjecture. She might have been a divorced woman cast off by her husband or, or an orphan without a father to help her in society. It seems like she's acting only on her own. Well, my guess is this. After all of these years as a single woman in a society that had no real place for single women at all, she meant, I mean, she knew what it meant to suffer. She knew what it meant to die every day. She knew what it meant to be denigrated, not to be recognized and seen as a viable person, as a full person, definitely is not one equal to other people. And she sees Jesus here just hours and hours before his crucifixion, and she recognizes it. She was able to transmute her own condition as an oppressed woman into sympathy and an act of, well, almost sacrament in a way. I won't call it one, but almost a sacrament uh, for Jesus. And he accepts it. And then he says this, wherever the good news is going to be spread, this will be done in memory of her. I don't know why we haven't done that. When was the last time we ever had a service done in memory of her? Have we? When was the last time in any kind of summary of the gospel, like the Apostles' Creed, which I'm all for the Apostles' Creed, 
there's a recognition of what she has done. Well, Jesus said it should be there. Now, of course, a lot of people have conjectured about the absence of that command that Jesus gives a generation or so after this. Or again, this is conjecture, I think, that you know, certain men became dominant and powerful and formative in the early church, and they did not want to give recognition or, or too much recognition of women in their ministry being patriarchs and so on. And so they just didn't do this. They squelched it. Maybe so. I don't know. But whatever has happened, we need to pay what Jesus, we need to take seriously what Jesus has done. She did something that was phenomenal. She did. She had an intuition, a visceral connection with Jesus, a sense that she was, as I tried to say, able to transform all those hours and, and heartbreaks and grief that she must have felt, that she too was dying, into this great act of devotion to Christ. And we should remember her for what she has done. Uh, also, I'm not going to have, I want to quickly say this, I have to summarize this. The women uh, were there at the empty tomb. You, you, you know that pretty well. There's a well-known story. They were the first to see the risen Christ. Mary Magdalene, Mary, Joanna, and Salome were the first to see the risen Christ. And just as Jesus commissioned, in a way, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well to go and tell other people, he also tells these women to go and tell the disciples to wait for me and that I am risen. I mean, that's what he said. Tell them, I am risen. They were the first to make that claim that we will be making claim next Sunday. He is risen. And to meet me in Galilee. He commissions them. He doesn't wait for Peter and John to show up at the interview, which they do after they hear from the women. He commissions them. In other words, they are equal in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God liberates us from those things that separate us, men and women. We find our full equality in our obedience to Jesus Christ. Uh, there are a number of miracles that I, you know, that Jesus performed for women. You know, some of them are very, very powerful, like the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and the woman who was crippled for 18 years. And there are these two wonderful parables that Jesus uses women in. Uh, any of you remember what those are? Uh, the two parables that Jesus uh, uses? Which one, right? Isn't it ironic that even in the day when women still are rejected from being able to participate as proclaimers of the gospel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's ironic. women who first did it. Right, right. That's right, the lost coin in Luke chapter 15. And the other one, and this is a good one too. This is kind of like the Syrophoenician woman. He uses a woman as the importune widow. You remember this? There's this unjust judge, and there's this widow just you know, harassing him all the time, you know, constantly saying, you've got to do this for me, do this for me. And finally he does it, and Jesus says, well, if an unjust judge would do that, then your loving God the Father would do it. Okay. So he uses a woman to do that. There are a couple of things... I wish I had a, you know, a couple of hours to talk about this, but uh, I, um, you know, there, there's this scene in which Jesus uh, uh, is being harassed then by the Pharisees, and he talks about what it means to be a follower of him, and he makes these very troubling, problematic, uh, but significant statements that, you know, if you don't love me more than your father and mother, then you're not a follower of me. 
Now the Luke in parallel this, it, which is found in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, is you must hate your father and mother. Matthew says you must love me more than your father and mother, sons and daughters. But the Luke account is you must hate your father and mother, sons and daughters, to be a follower of me. Again, I don't know what to make out of that. Other than this, obviously Jesus is not rejecting marriage. He believes in marriage. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, he has the strongest of any teacher in Scripture description of what marriage is. Man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. And what God brought together, no one can put asunder. So it is God ordained. So he's not against marriage. So what is, what is he talking about when he says, you've got to hate your father and mother or love me more than father? I think what he's saying here, and this is my interpretation of it, the significance of, of marriage, of family relationships, is not in itself, but in whether it serves the kingdom of God. The real value of marriage is whether it is the way by which two people faithfully live out their discipleship to God. Marriage does not justify itself in that regard. It is justified by its faithfulness and fidelity uh, to God and the kingdom of God. And so it's not that whether, whether Jesus is good for marriage. That's what he's rejecting. You should believe in Jesus. You should be a disciple of Christ because it will help you be a good wife or help you to be a good husband. I don't know about that. But the better question would be, is your marriage, is your relationship with your children, your parents, is it worthy enough to be a servant of the kingdom of God? So marriage is justified by what it contributes to the kingdom, not the other way around. I think that's what he's stressing here. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He wasn't a marriage counselor. He wasn't a civil rights rebellion, rebel. He wasn't definitely a military rebel. He wasn't all these things. Too many times we've got these kind of stereotypes that we like and that we favor. You know, I really want a Republican or a Democrat. And I'm going to put Jesus in there and put Jesus in there. Well, flapdoodle on all that. That's just wrong. You're, that, that's a total misuse of the Scripture. Jesus breaks through all those barriers. Now, I've just got a couple more minutes before I've got to uh, stop. Uh, Jesus' relationship to his mother. Um, this, this, this to me is one of the more curious aspects of his ministry. Of course, you know, Mary is the handmaiden of the Lord, and we should honor that about her. She was chosen of all people to give birth to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first encounter that we see, this conscious encounter between Jesus and Mary, is when he's age 12, is when he's in the temple. We don't know much prior to that. Uh, we are told that Joseph and Mary take Jesus after eight days to the temple to be circumcised, but obviously Jesus does not respond to that. But if you remember, when Joseph and Mary find Jesus down there, they sort of chide him. Now here we've gone, I mean, we've gone all these days, he hadn't been with us, we've just been scared to death. When our oldest son was two, I think it was two, we lost him one time. And I still have that feeling. <laughs> we found him, praise the Lord. I, I still have that feeling. And he, you know, I don't know, Stephen's 36 years old. Be that as it may, I can imagine what they felt. Uh, I wanted to shake him. <laughs> I'm just so glad to see him. And I can imagine Joseph and Mary wanted to shake him. And what did Jesus say? I was doing my father's business. So it wasn't Mary defining his mission, but rather... He was defining her mission to him. She was to help him 
to do his father's work. Then there are some episodes um, uh, in which people come up to Jesus, and I'm going to read these, and point out Mary to him. And it mentions his brothers, even though for some people that may be controversial. While Jesus was speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers stood outside trying to speak with him, just like any mother would. I mean, if your mother was saying, get here, wouldn't you want to get here? Well, she's trying to speak to Jesus. Someone said to him, look, your mother and brother are outside wanting to speak with you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He stretched out his hands towards his disciples and said, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. So he relativizes his relationship to his own mother. That his purpose was not just to be her son, which is the natural relationship. His purpose was to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And all people then are fully equal in that. That's the point about this. It's not that she has something special that nobody else has, though she is the handmaiden of the Lord. But all people are my mother's brothers and sisters. And then there's that final word that Jesus has about Mary when he's on the cross. And he says to John, the disciple, here is your mother. He calls Mary, not just his mother, but John's mother. He, in a sense, adopts Mary... We don't know anything about Joseph, quite honestly, nothing. Obviously, she's been alone for many years, but now she is under the care of the Apostle John. And that's the last we have. Uh, let me, uh, I'll wrap this up. Time is almost up. Um, you know, the, these are fascinating aspects about the story of Jesus. Obviously, the disciples who wrote the Gospels intended them to stay there and for significance. There might have been many other accounts that Jesus had with women. But these, though, are part of the story, and we should not neglect them. And they tell something very, very significant. And what they tell is this, is that the kingdom of God is meant for everybody. That Christ came and died for all people. That there's no special favors given to any one group or any one gender or any one race, any one class or any one profession. That all people, and this was my point at the beginning, are totally, fully equal in the kingdom of God. So there, as the Apostle Paul so rightly said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, rich or poor, in the kingdom of God. We're all equal in this. And so, if any institution in our society, and I'm being emphatic here just to sort of set the nail, if any institution in our society ought to know what it means to be fully equal as male and female, it should be the church. Not these other institutions that you may be partially equal but not fully equal, or you may not be equal at all. But we must find a way to live in this tremendously powerful but atypical relationship of being disciples in the kingdom of God. So we're all equal. And I would say, praise be to God for that. All right, thank you. We won't meet next Sunday, but we will the following Sunday, and we'll talk about Jesus' relationship to the sick. It's interesting. And then finally, his relationship to death. All right.
Thank you very much, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Hope you have a great and blessed Holy Week. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent Birmingham.